Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design from RMIT University. And I'm with curator Emma Lesowski-Cox, who's curator at the Bendigo Art Gallery. And she has been uh, very important in putting together with um, the V&A in London, uh, Mary Quant Fashion Revolutionary, which is on at the gallery uh, until... July the 21st, so you've, you've got plenty of time. Welcome to the program, Emma. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's great to be here. Um, Emma, how did this exhibition start out? Did the Bendigo Art Gallery reach out to the V&A or did the V&A approach an Australian gallery or museum and say, look, are you interested? How did it start? Well, the, I understand the exhibition in its genesis started some 10 um, that's maybe another story um, for the V&A to develop it. But Bendigo Art Gallery has a great relationship with the V&A that, that goes back um, a decade. And we've presented a number of their exhibitions, including last year, Balenciaga. So, you know, we have this ongoing sort of um, relationship. And I guess we're perfectly placed to, you know, present these um, types of exhibitions in Bendigo as Australian exclusives. We're sort of somewhere between a, a state institution and, and a smaller regional gallery. So um, if, you, if you can cast your mind back a couple of years ago when we were allowed to travel internationally, I was lucky to be in London and saw the exhibition there at the V&A and loved it. And the director, Jess, at Bendigo and I um, talked about it and, you know, had a conversation about how this might cut through with our, our own audiences and we were very keen. So um, Jessica did all the magic talking at the upper levels and we were able to secure it for Bendigo, an Australian exclusive. Um, Emma, how much of that exhibition ended up at the Bendigo Art Gallery? Like, did you, is it the entirety of it or is it a slightly modified exhibition? It's, it's the same exhibition. Um, there would be, you know, maybe a, a small handful of garments that didn't come for one reason or another. Different lenders have different um, requirements, I suppose. It's certainly the same exhibition. Um, there was a small amount of the cosmetics um, that couldn't travel because of, um, you know, dangerous goods and whatnot. So the, we don't have nail polish in the exhibition. Um, but it's certainly, yes, the same, the same exhibition and um, shows the same scope of, of Quant's career. Emma, why are we looking at Mary Quant now? Why is it now that you think the timing is right? Is it because there's renewed interest in that period or is it, you know, why? Well, I think that, you know, it's timely for a few reasons. And I know that the V&A were interested, the fashion curators, um, Jenny Lister and Stephanie Wood, were uh, you know, had to push their case for developing this exhibition. The quant hadn't been looked at in any seriousness by museums since the 1970s. And when she had an exhibition at the Museum of London, she's never had an exhibition in Australia. Um, but, you know, I guess just thinking about fashion and um, design and the sorts of shows that the V&A would normally do. They look at couture and these sort of high-end sort of um, exhibitions. But Quant, you know, in terms of social impact, just there was just arguably no greater designer of the 20th century. So, you know, that social history story, um, 
and just exploring that affect. Quanti's still alive. She's She turned 91 last month. So all of these things sort of coalesced into um, what became a great exhibition. Um, look, it was an extraordinary period, and I think it was a, a period of freedom, absolute freedom, uh, particularly for women who were quite constricted until the you know early to mid-60s, wearing things that their mothers perhaps were wearing and then there was this wonderful liberation uh, where people could you know young women and older women could say look we don't want to wear that stuff anymore we don't want to look like our mothers and so that's an interesting period in history where there was this huge breakaway from the past which is really what's represented at this exhibition that's right uh, it, you know quant emerged out of post-war Britain and, you know, a time where lots of things were coming together to, you know, present an optimistic sort of uh, new identity for, for Britain. So coming out of that, and there's this great quote by Quant that, you know, London post-war was all fog and railway stations and stockings and suspenders. You know, she painted this quite gloomy sort of picture. And as we know, you know, through history, when great change happens it's often a reaction against something that has gone before so if you think about the sort of music that began to emerge in the mid-1950s to 60s it was this revolution of rock music and and jazz as well so she was part of an entire milieu a cultural milieu uh, responding to all sorts of forces that were happening around that time um, Emma, in a sense that, uh, you know, this freedom of movement and expression, and you, you mentioned about the gloomy times in London in the post-war period, but in a sense, it's kind of all time because we just had that pandemic. And in a sense, there's that desire for a slight, you know, more freedom now, you know, so I suppose that's another thing. It's kind of, it's coming, it's not the end of a war, but it feels like we've been through a very trying time. And so these garments are really liberating and uplifting and have a real joyous feel where, you know, anything went. They certainly do. And, um, you know, pragmatically that has translated very nicely to pre-sale tickets for us, which have numbered in the thousands. So people are, you know, really interested in getting out and doing something and seeing something that's quite joyful as well. But that freedom that you talk about, and it's also a, a very topical, you know, contemporary subject. We're all talking about that um, in relation to women and women's rights at the moment, aren't we? You know, right up mm. to what's happening in Parliament House. So, you know, it takes someone to go on the front foot and, and to lead the way. And that was Mary Quant at the time. She, as she said herself, I didn't have time to wait for women's lib. You know, she was just this driven businesswoman with, with a vision for what she wanted to achieve in fashion. And, and I, what I love about her designs is that idea that she was releasing women from these sort of strictures of before, you know, everything from the, um, hyper-feminized kind of silhouette of the 1950s and the very the controlled Dior look. Sort of, the Dior look and, you know, and how, how that also affects behaviour. So she wanted relaxed clothes that were suited to, you know, the actions of a normal life and, and for women that involved working and running for a bus and, you know, going from uh, daytime to the nightclub and all these sorts of things. So she really saw how... Um, clothing was functional and enabling socially. 
How do you see the relationship between um, Mary Quant and what Bieber was doing in London a little bit later, but around at the same period, they kind of merged together. How do you see the two working together? Well, uh, from what I understand, Bieber had a little bit more of the sort of bohemian kind of uh, longer hemlines kind of look. I think uh, but there's a real diversity to what Quant did as well, and uh, you definitely see that in the exhibition, and that sort of exemplifies the... Um, you know, edict that she had that fashion was for everyone. So you do see a real diversity in, in her designs and a constant sort of evolution of um, the sorts of garments she was producing. And that was reflected in the, you know, great diversity of her clientele, in her own words, people from duchesses to typists, um, you know, bought out her garments. Um, what are some of the highlights in the exhibition for you, Emma? What are the things that you just continually walk past? And you're very fortunate you can walk past them every day. Um, <laughs> but what are the things that really uh, resonate with you? Look, what I love about this exhibition is seeing the different garments that were owned and worn by different women. And you can see that they've been worn as well. And I do come back to this uh, a silk party dress of it's quite an early garment it's about 1959 1960 and you know it's sort of got a drop waist with a sort of drawstring at the hip but you can see um a tiny little stain on the on the waistline there and i can imagine the woman you know going to a great party and dropping a little hors d'oeuvre down the front of herself <laughs> Um, I love those little details, but, to, you know, I mean, to me, the jersey, the wool stretch jersey mini dresses are just absolutely fabulous. With the matching and tights. With the matching tights and the matching berets and the colours are just so fantastic. These bright apple green and, you know, reds and bright yellows and they're just so contemporary and you can tell they're very comfortable to wear as well. And that was also Quant's signature look. So I keep coming back to those. Who do you... Um who do you see as, uh, you know, comparable uh, Australian designers that perhaps would fit into the Mary Quant mould? Well, I mean, there's Prue Acton, of course, and, you know, Prue was very much a contemporary of, of Mary Quant and she uh, very happily reached out to us um, when she heard the exhibition was opening and so uh, she came and um, we had a nice time in the exhibition together. I guess, you know, and an, another very young woman who, you know, was driven in her, in her vision and really tapped into that milieu and that time to, you know, present a new look, look for women. So Prue Acton definitely, and she was also one of the very small handful of designers that the Butterick Pattern Company invited to make her designs available as um, sew-at-home patterns alongside Mary Quant. And the other thing that the two have in common is that both did uh, produce makeup ranges. That's right, they did, yes. Quant uh, launched her cosmetics range in 1966 after years of research as she as she said herself you know now that the the clothes were right the face was all wrong so this was a you know a new uh, approach to cosmetics and everything from the packaging uh, through to the colors through to the way that the cosmetics were sold um, and of course her daisy logo on these very modern um, you know almost 
geometric and black and white sort of um, packaging um, were given this, you know, quant treatment. And that, that DAISY logo as well was um, a big part of that. And that was something that she uh, registered that same year and saw her brand go even further. And I suppose, uh, Emma, it's also the start of that holistic approach to design because the the face was eventually worked into the outfit and then also the geometric hairdos by Videl Sassoon also became part of the look, which she was very much the full, you know, the face of during that time. She she was her own her own brand ambassador, that's right. And so the hair, you know, was similar to the clothing in a way because it was you know, and again, if you think to what the desired look was previously in the 50s was this sort of heavy, heavily lacquered and um, done up kind of hair that didn't move almost, you know. A bit so like Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, you know, the quant bob, the, the Vidal Sassoon five-point bob was just clean hair and in a fantastic cut and short and it just, you know, went with that whole idea of... Um, you know, the busy modern woman who was, you know, running out the door to her job and um, liberated to live live her life. What were some of the challenges of bringing such an exhibition to, you know, so far in, in really fairly challenging times? Yes. And, well, normally, um, you know, we would have staff from the lending institution come out to, um, you know, help condition report the garments and then of course install the exhibition alongside us and so in the COVID environment our friends and colleagues in the UK are much worse off than us in Australia and so that that really couldn't happen this time. So it did force us to put a lot more time and energy into obviously working uh, remotely and working with an exhibition designer to get very detailed plans that were then sent back to London um, for their approval and sign-off and feedback. And the challenge, of course, of that is the time difference. So, you know, that would often mean a, an overnight wait for um, whatever, you, you know, you needed to sort of check off. But I guess that, you know... Um, there's a lot of trust there and an established relationship. So that that wasn't um, so much an issue, but it was a shame, you know, installing this, this exhibition. And for my, myself, you know, we had very detailed plans of what we wanted to do, but we're unpacking these crates and this is the very first time really that I've, I've seen these, these items. I had seen the show in London, but to have, you know, a colleague there that was very, very familiar with everything, would have been really fantastic. Um, I think it's it's really quite brilliant that the Bendigo have kind of almost, uh, ac you know, accommodated fashion exhibitions. I mean, you've had some amazing exhibitions. Um, what is it about fashion that you think uh, excites people? And it's not just people who are, you know, into fashion. I mean, it's bigger than that. Is it the history? Is it that people can remember the things that they wore in the 60s? Is it nostalgia? Is it just a sense of what fashion could be? What, what is, why is it so strong fashion? Because it's not just, you know, women in their 60s who wore the, the garments or the 70s who are coming to the exhibition. It's really a broad cohort. Well, that's right. And I think if we think about visual culture, you know, um, 
fashion has an even greater effect, arguably, than visual art. So, you know, if you think about um, the way, you know, we all engage with fashion on, on one level or another. And so, you know, with an exhibition like Balenciaga, it's almost more about the fantasy and the unattainable and the dream of, you know, perhaps one day having such a garment. But with Quant, it was about everybody. So, and about um, people being able to express themselves however they wanted to, to do so. Quant garments were so widely distributed in Australia. I mean, you could buy them in Bendigo. So, you know, and that particular time and place in history, that 1960s where, you know, um, economically and socially, there was so much more freedom and, you know, lots of employment opportunities and educational opportunities, such fantastic music. We're just continually drawn back to that, that time of, of modernism. If you are, uh, if you're looking at designers today, this is a bit of a curly question, and you, and you don't have to answer it if you don't <laughs> want to. But um, if you were looking at designers today, and it could be uh, Australian or international designers, who would you see as a, a contemporary version of Mary Quant? Would it be someone like Donna Karen, or I mean, who would you say is kind of on the same wavelength? It is a bit of a, a bit of a curly one, um, and I guess you know when Quant moved out of really producing fashion, she closed her label, her Ginger Group label, in the mid seventies. It was really because mass production had happened already. So you know, um, clothing was suddenly available, you know, globally as as it had never been done so as it hadn't been before so yeah that's a bit of a, a bit of a curly one I'd probably want to sit on that one it. a little bit yes um, I mean there's so many terrific designers in Australia as well but I guess these days what we value in fashion the hot topic now is sustainability and so it's almost in a way the opposite to um, mass production and the things we value are, are much more sort of it's, have it's come almost, full circle. Yeah, it's almost become back to the, I mean, it's probably uh, become much more into the bespoke now and that's pr across all price points that people want that sense of individuality of, you know, not being in a tribe, you know, doing their own thing. And so in a sense, it probably, you know, you, you're not going to see it today. Well, that's right. And so it's almost, you know, the mass production techniques have gone too far. And then there's, you know, obviously ethics, um, ethical considerations with that as well. Mm -hmm. So what we're valuing is more um, localism, I think, and, you know, ethically produced garments and um, the opposite to mass production. What what if you know? I mean, there was the you like those the very bright jerseys. Uh, there's also a piece in the exhibition that sounds fabulous. Can't wait to see it, Emma. It's a goatskin coat with hand painted dots to make it look like a cheetah. No pun intended. And I think what a hoot. Um, that obviously wouldn't have been the uh, the mainline range. That would have been probably more the bespoke. You know. And it probably would have been, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know the prices and it probably put, could have cost £100 or something, you know, more. What do you look at and see when you, when that, you pass that garment? That's, a, that's an interesting one. And it is, yes, a little more of a, 
not a one-off, but it w- probably wasn't part of her, you know, highly um, sort of produced sort of garments. But it was a similar one was worn by Patty Boyd, and there's an image of Patty in the exhibition wearing wearing a similar garment, and she was, of course, one of the you know it girls of the 1960s. Yeah, George Harrison, who, George Harrison's partner. That's right. She married George Harrison and she and George had commissioned Quant to make fur coats for their wedding day. Um, they were a bit more, um, they didn't have the cheetah sort of faux cheetah look. But, um, <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a standout, that garment. It's, it looks totally like something, you know, you would have seen in the 1990s down Greville Street or something like that. Um, and, you know, it is, it's special because there is, you know, that celebrity sort of um, connection to it, which, you know, is not really what Quant was about. Do you think exhibitions such as this start off a trend or they, what do they do? What do you think things like that do when they circle the globe? I think that they, um, you know, yeah, do trigger that sort of sense of nostalgia and and fun. And people, I've noticed, you know, in these exhibitions, they um, talk about that triggers their own memories and their own stories that they can relate of that time. Or for young people, they sort of have a different sort of nostalgia. If they didn't live through it, they, you know, perhaps wish that they did. Um, who Who doesn't wish they sort of were hanging out with the Rolling Stones down in the King's Road, Chelsea in London. So I think, you know, it's, yeah, does create a a trigger, a bit of a nostalgic uh, trip down memory lane and people revisiting the music and and fashion um, of that time. And does it also, uh, I mean, do you see this exhibition as tying in with, a renewed interest in, say, things like 60s and 70s furniture and architecture design? Is it kind of, is it all one thing or is it kind of not one thing? Well, I think that, you know, in the last decade or so, there's been this huge interest in modernism in terms of furniture and modernist design and there's all sorts of interesting conversations happening around the heritage now of that area, if you think about architecture and um, different uh, you know, conversations that are going on in Melbourne and other places and that, you know, perhaps at that time were, were less valued. So I think, um, yeah, look, it's it's recent history. It's still within, you know, obviously with living memory and there's something very enduring about uh, a simple kind of, you know, well-cut um, garment that hasn't hasn't dated really. And when people visit the exhibition, is there kind of music from that period that will kind of take them back as well, Emma? Yes, we did actually have a soundscape artist develop a soundscape for the exhibition, Jed Palmer. And um, so hopefully it's not, um, you know, it's a bit of a background kind of thing. It does incorporate some street sounds and things like that. But we did want to sort of create... um, a sense of, you know, immersion, I suppose, in in the era. Look, I can't wait to see it. I'm so excited. And um, I think, look, even if people say, listening to this and go, oh, fashion's not my thing, I really think you need to look outside of that fashion en veron and just say, look, it's part of history and it, it was an inspiring time. 
And it really, there's so much there that you really need to kind of, you know, put your prejudices aside and say, look, let's embrace passion, even though you might not normally do so. I think it's just one of those exhibitions that people should really make an effort to see because it won't be coming out again. It certainly won't. And, you know, it does have that very strong sort of a very quite broad social history element to it as well. So this was a a movement and a, a change in design that was just truly international and was like nothing that had gone before. So even if you're not so much into into fashion design, I think you can recognise, you know, what Quant was sort of saying through fashion and for her that was, you know, enabling a more liberated sort of behaviour in women in particular. Look, I, um, I'm very excited. Look, thanks so much for coming on to the program today, uh, Emma. Um, and look, if you're interested, which I'm sure you will be, uh, the Mary Quant Fashion Revolutionary is on from uh, start, opened in March, March the 20th, and it goes until July the 21st. So I really recommend you go and see it. So thanks for coming on to the program today, Emma. My pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for having me. And uh, you've been listening to Emma Basowski Cox, um, who's curator at the Bendigo Art Gallery. So um, thanks so much for coming onto the program. You've been listening to Stephen Crafty. Talking Design is produced by RMIT University and brought to you in partnership with Melbourne City Council. If you'd like to stay up to date with all things Talking Design, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at talkingdesign underscore.